Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're in Matthew chapter 18 this morning, verses 10 through 14. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. Jesus is speaking to us here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them is gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Father, we thank You so much that You care about the one. And that one is, is us, is me. Is George, is Michael, is Daniel, is Becky, is Keisha, is Howard, is Dave and Kay, Phyllis, Lena, Kimberly, Chris and Dee. These are the ones and all the members of our church, all your sheep, You care about the one, Lord. You care about our lives and the circumstances of our lives, the hardships we have, the trials that we have, the pains, the sufferings. You care about every one of them, Lord, to the detail. We thank You, Lord, that You're a God of details. That not a bird can fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. That You care about the little bird's flight path. You certainly care for us. Father, thank You that You care about the One. Thank You for Your great love for us. Thank You for Your compassion, Your patience, Your tenderness, Your kindness. Thank You, Lord, that You chase us down when we go astray. Thank You that You love us that much. Thank You that You'll never let us go. Father, we ask that we would hear from You this morning, that we would truly have hearts and minds and ears to hear and eyes to see. We Pray, Lord, that You would change us, that You would change us as we are overwhelmed with the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit toward us. And so as we know Your love and are satisfied in Your love and content in Your love, Lord, we pray that would propel us to live as You want us to live. And so, Father, overwhelm us with Your love today. We pray for those who may be here and have gone astray that as they see Your great love chasing them down, that You would break their hearts with Your kindness. The kindness of God leads to repentance. So Father, let let us see Your kindness today. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Last week we saw that Jesus is the God-man who warns us not to tempt others because He hates sin. 
And He commands us to fight for holiness with extreme measures lest we end up in hell. And He does this because He loves us. We want to protect each other by helping each other pursue holiness and by pursuing our own holiness in Christ. This is part of what it means to love one another in the church. We don't want to lead one another into temptation and we ourselves want to turn from sin for the glory of God and we want to be godly examples to one another. Well, Jesus today continues with this theme of loving one another in the church in the verses that we're studying. And we see today that Jesus is the God-man and good shepherd who came to save that which was lost so that we will not despise one another and we're motivated not to despise one another because our Father in heaven deeply loves us and will never let us perish. Point number one, Jesus commands His disciples not to despise other believers. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Jesus commands His disciples not to look down on, not to despise, not to look down on other believers, not to hate them, not to treat them with contempt. Who are the little ones? They are the little ones of verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. These little ones who believe in me, they include children who believe in Jesus. They include the, the lowly, the humble, the most insignificant uh, as viewed by the world. Uh, they include uh, uh, all those who humble themselves like children like the child Jesus uses as an object lesson in verses 2 through 4. So, so essentially, it includes all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the little ones we're not to despise. Why would Jesus have to make such a command? <laughs> Don't despise one another. Is that sort of come as a shock? Like, why? Why would, why would Jesus have to command us not to hate each other? Because we're all sinners. <laughs> because we are all sinners. We naturally divide and criticize and look down on others and sin against each other and despise each other. Even those who are closest to us, we do that with. Especially those we're closest to, we treat that way. So, so let's just think about this, husbands and wives. I mean, God commands husbands in Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why would God need to say that? Because husbands are prone to be harsh with their wives. Harsher with their wives than with the mail carrier. Does that mean you love the mail carrier more than your wife? No. It just means you're in a close relationship with her and not the mail carrier. Titus 2.4 commands older women train the young women to love their husbands and children. <laughs> young women need to be trained to love their husband and ch children. It, it just doesn't come naturally. They have to be trained. Older women are to train younger women how to love your husband and love your children. Because it doesn't come naturally because we're sinners. I love what Vodi Bauckham said in a sermon on marriage. He, he says, what's the sanctification by love argument? Well, 
he keeps doing A, B, C, or X, Y, Z, or she keeps doing A, B, C, and X, Y, Z, and if they really loved me, they wouldn't do that. That's the sanctification by love argument, right? If you really loved me, then you wouldn't sin against me. And then he says, that's the stupidest thing that a Christian ever said. I'm glad nobody said amen before that. That's the stupidest thing any Christian ever said. If you really love me, then you wouldn't do this. Because here's the deal. I love God and I sin against God. I love God and I sin against God. Who does my wife think she is? That loving her ought to mean that I don't sin against her. Come on now. That's also quite idolatrous, right? Like, you're a sinner. You're a sinner, but if you really love me, you're supposed to love me. If you really love me like you're supposed to love me, that would do what the cross can't do. You better watch your mouth, right? Here's the other thing. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm being sanctified. The Lord is chiseling away at me, but I'm not fixed yet. Amen? So if I'm a sinner and there's going to be a sin committed in my life, against whom am I going to sin more than anybody else? The person closest to me. So really, if we had our uh, uh, had proper theology, we would say, if you really love me, you would sin against me a lot more. If you're sinning against somebody else more than you're sinning against me, that means you're closer to them than you are to me, and we got a problem. <laughs> do, you, do you see his argument there? Now, certainly, in marriage and close relationships, we want to grow in holiness and sin against each other less. But, but what he's saying is that when we're, when we're in close relationships with people, like in marriage, like in family, like in church family, we're going to sin against each other. Because that's what sinners do. And, and we, what, what, the point is, we need to look to Jesus. We need to hope in Christ. We need to grow in Christ. We need to learn how to deal with conflict and sin biblically. And God uses those close relationships to actually show us our sin so that we grow in Christ likeness. And so Jesus commands his disciples don't despise each other. Don't despise each other. What about in the church? I mentioned church members. Jesus prayed for us. In John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. We're to work toward this oneness and not despising one another but loving one another. Ephesians 4, 1-3, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to fight to do that as Christians in the church. We have to fight to maintain unity and peace and love because we're sinners. And so Jesus commands, do not despise one another. And we're called not to despise one another, but also rather to love one another. To love one another. Romans 12, 9-10 Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-8 If I speak in the tongues of men of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And yes, that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is often appropriately read at weddings, but, but if you look at the context of what's going in the book of, of Corinth, they're not doing all those things. <laughs> they're not being patient with, with one another. They're arguing. They're backbiting. They're, they're, they're given to pride and arrogance. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. I'm this. I'm that. You're not that. Look down on you. Terrible things are happening in the church of Corinth. And they need to learn to love. They need to learn to love. We have to be called back to love one another, not despise one another. And how can we love? I mean, how can we even love one another rightly? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. We, we, we have to know the love of God in Christ Jesus that God has for us before we can love anybody else. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you got to learn to love yourself first. No. No, no, no. Don't ever say that. Please don't ever say that. Because I'm going to give you a look. <laughs> you don't need to learn to love yourself first. You love yourself fine and plenty dandy. Yes, amen. Took that shower, got those clothes on, fed yourself breakfast. You love yourself. Yeah. You don't need any growth in that. You need to learn the love of God for you. We love because He first loved us. You, you've got to get the gospel before you can love others the way you're meant to love them. You have to get the gospel before you can love your husband or your wife or your children the way you're supposed to love them. You have to get the gospel before you can love your fellow church members. You have to get the gospel before you can do what Jesus said, even love your enemies. Because naturally, we don't love one another. We hate other people. Naturally, we hate God and we hate other people. Naturally, we do the opposite of the first and second greatest commandment. We hate God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we hate our neighbor. So we need Christ. We need Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning, you've never heard the gospel, this is the most important message that you need to hear because you can't love until you get this right. And, and the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned against God. We've broken His commandments. We, we've loved everything but God. We've hated God. And we're sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We deserve God's wrath and judgment in hell forever because of our sin. But God loves. God loves His enemies. God loves like no one ever loved. And so He sent His Son Jesus into the world. God's Son, the sinner's Savior, the centerpiece of civilization. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He loved God perfectly. He loved His neighbor perfectly. And He died on that cross where He suffered the curse and wrath and judgment of God that we deserve. He bled and died. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. And He's calling all people everywhere to turn from sin and believe in Him. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You shall be saved. 
Have you done that? Have you seen the love of God in the gospel? Have you seen how much God loves you by sending His Son to die for you? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you seen that love? Friend, I'm inviting you today right now to believe on Him, to trust in Him. Don't wait. Trust in Him. There are people here who would love to talk with you about the Gospel. If you've not trusted Him, find me afterwards. I'll be here. There are other Christians who would love to speak with you about Jesus. You need to trust in Him today and be saved today because you do not know if tomorrow will come. And once you trust in Him, His Spirit comes and lives in you. And, and you, you know the love of God. The Holy Spirit's poured into you and, 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 and you, you, you know and feel the, the love of God for you in Christ and you're empowered by the Spirit to, to then live and love others and not despise others. Jesus not only commands us not to despise other believers, but He gives us and His disciples reasons not to despise other believers. He, he gives us reasons not to despise other believers. Look at verses 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, so he, he gives the command and he says, these, these are some reasons why you shouldn't. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus' Father shows an intimate personal knowledge, love and care for every single believer. And therefore, so should you. That's Jesus' argument. Jesus' Father shows an intimate, personal knowledge, love and care for every single believer, however insignificant seemingly to the world, and therefore, so should you. Verse 10, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Leon Morris comments, Jesus is using picturesque language to bring out the truth that God in heaven is aware of their situation here on earth, of even the lowliest of His people. God knows. God knows what you're going through. God knows every detail. And He cares. He loves you. Now, there are two uh, ways to understand these words about the fathers, the, the angels before the father's face. Um, and both, both ways I'm going to interpret this are true according to the Bible. Uh, it's just what, what, what does this verse actually teach? And, and both interpretations make the same point that God cares for his people. The, the first interpretation of how to understand 
that, that, that the, uh, in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven is that God the Father intimately, personally knows, loves, and cares for all His children so much that they will one day enjoy His very presence. And therefore, you should not despise them, but love them too. You see that? God the Father intimately, personally knows, loves, and cares for all His children so much that they will one day enjoy His very presence. And therefore, you should not despise them, but love them too. D.A. Carson holds this view, and he cites B.B. Warfield. The angels of the little ones are their spirits after death. And they always see the Father's face. Do not despise these little ones, Jesus says, for their destiny is the unshielded glory of the Father's presence. The present tense they always see raises no difficulty because Jesus is dealing with a class, not individuals. The same interpretation admirably suits Acts 12.15, which says they said to her, you were at, this is when Peter was released from prison and is at the door trying to get in. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is, it is his angel. In other words, it's His Spirit. What the assembled group thinks is standing outside is Peter's spirit, angel, which accounts for Rhoda's recognition of His voice. Jesus teaches that God's people in the resurrection will be like the angels in heaven. The evidence, though not overwhelming, is substantial enough to suppose that their angels simply refers to their continued existence in the Heavenly Father's presence. So that's one interpretation. And just get, get the weight of that. The, these, these little ones are so precious to me, God the Father is saying. They're going to be in my very presence. They're going to enjoy fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. They're mine. They belong to me. They will enjoy me forever. I love them that much. And so should you. You should not despise them because I love them. That's one interpretation. Second interpretation. God the Father intimately, personally knows, loves, and cares for all His children so much that He protects them with His angels, and therefore you should not despise them, but love them too. And so there are angels that, that are before the face of God, that, that have a hearing with God, and God sends those angels to care for, protect, guard, and watch over His little ones. And since God the Father cares for these little ones so much that He would use His, His, His armies, the Lord of hosts would send His armies to care for His people, you should not despise them. You should care for them. Don't we see this, beloved, throughout the Bible? Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and He delivers them. Psalm 91 9 through 10, which Brother Bob read for us, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Hebrews 1.14 says, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve you who are to inherit salvation. Angels are real. 
We see them act in Daniel 6.22. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? He, Daniel was, was saved from the lions and, and he said in Daniel 6.22, My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me. Angels, an angel ministered to Jesus when he prayed in Gethsemane and asked the Lord to take his father to take this cup away. Luke twenty two forty three, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And of course, Peter's rescue from jail in Acts twelve eleven. When Peter came to himself, he said, "Now I am sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting." David Platt comments, consider if the father has angelic attendants that he sends out to serve and protect his children, then how much more should we love his children? That is, if God cares enough about his children to command angels to attend to their needs, how can we remain indifferent to our fellow believers? That's Jesus' argument there. Whichever interpretation you take, the argument's the same. God The Father cares about these children. He cares about His people. He cares about His loved ones. And so should we. Don't despise each other. Jesus also argues, don't despise one another, but love one another because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at verses 11 through 14 again. For the Son of Man has come. Son of Man is the, uh, one of Jesus' favorite ways to speak of Himself. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Beloved, we notice several things from these verses. Number one, we notice that Jesus came to save. And I realize verse 11 is one of those variants that may not be in some of your Bibles. We spoke about variants in the Bible several weeks ago. I'm not going to go over that. But the bottom line is this verse is also basically Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost And this is what the Bible teaches. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came on a mission to save that which was lost. And we we see that in this passage. Secondly, we see Jesus and His Father are the Good Shepherd in this passage. Jesus and His Father are the Good Shepherd in this passage. Shepherds, Right? We, 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 we don't know much about shepherds. We don't have shepherds here around uh, Philadelphia. Uh, but shepherds take care of the sheep. Uh, they, they, they watch over them and care for them. Uh, Gabriel got to go see a sheep sheared yesterday at Fox Chase Farm. And, 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 and so shepherds care, care for the sheep in, in that way. They feed the sheep. They guard the sheep. They protect the sheep. And Jesus does all of this for His little ones. And the Father, His Father in heaven does all of this for His little ones. I mean, we we read the Son of Man came to 
say that which was lost. And then after this, this parable Jesus tells about the shepherd going off to find the one, he ends with, so it is not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these should perish. And so, so the text points to the, the fact that both Jesus is the good shepherd and the father is the good shepherd. What does the Old Testament say? God is the good shepherd of His people. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. That, that means I have, I have Yahweh, I have the Lord, I don't need anything else. I have no wants, I have no needs, I lack nothing. Because I have God. And then Jesus is the good shepherd of His people. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Father is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. And Jesus and His Father are the good shepherd to care for us, to seek us, to save us, to care for us, to protect us, to provide for us, to guard us, to lead us, to be our all in all. To be the reason why we live. To be our satisfaction and our joy. Third, Jesus illustrates the value of one lost or straying soul. Jesus illustrates the value here of one lost or straying soul. Look again at verses 12 through 13. I hope you don't mind me repeating the Scripture over and over again. The Scripture is the best part of the sermon. I like to repeat the Scriptures over and over and over again. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. The Father cares about the one. Jesus cares about the one. God the Father and God the Son care about the one. They care about you. They care about you. you. You are not just one in a sea of humanity. God the Father, God the Son have an intimate care and love about you and every single detail of your life. Everything that's ever happened to you, everything that will ever happen, God cares about the one. He cares. And this shows the value of the one. The value of the one. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? One, one soul is worth more than the whole world. Leon Morris comments on Jesus' use of, of this. Because this, this, this is sort of striking, right? I mean, well, he, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one goes astray. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. That, 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 that's, that's the opposite of the, the worldly way of thinking. you leave the 99 and go after the one. What is Jesus communicating to us? 
Leon Morris comments, Jesus is not saying that the shepherd does not rejoice over those who are safe. I mean, again, remember that part of the passage too. Not only does he leave the 99 to go after the one, but when he finds the one, I mean, Jesus specifically says he rejoices more over the one than the 99 that didn't go astray. He cares about the one. Jesus is not saying, Leon Morris, Jesus is not saying that the shepherd does not rejoice over those who are safe, nor does he say that the heavenly father is less than delighted over disciples who are safe in the fold, but he points out that there is a peculiar joy over bringing one that is lost safely into the fold. The flock then has not lost one of its members. Beloved, you, you know this in your own life experience. Let's say you have 10 of something or 15 of something and you lost one of them and, and you, you get all worked up that you lost one. I mean, I mean, parents, you could even do this with children. If, if you lost one of your children, you have five back at home, but you lost one. Mama's going to go find that one. She's going to do whatever she needs to do to go find that one. And when she finds that one, there is rejoicing. Yes, I found Johnny. I found Billy. I found John Owen. I found him. He's not lost anymore. He's saved. He's with us. He's safe. There's rejoicing. You, you know that. You, you know that in your own experience. It, 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 you lose something and you find it and there's joy in finding that which was lost. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not, not to any way diminish the love for the other five children or the other uh, 99 sheep, but just to emphasize that love of the one. I like how Ligon Duncan puts it. Jesus is using an illustration that we can all identify with in order to emphasize to us not that God loves some of His children more than others, but to show that God loves all His children and each of them individually. He shows special concern and care for even those who are lost, even those who are weak, even those who are marginalized, even those who look like they are straying away. He is concerned to regain them. He has a, a specific and special concern for each one of us. That is the point of this passage. You should feel the love of the Father today. He cares about you. Are you here straying? Are, have you walked away from the Lord today? Are you struggling with your walk with Him? Do you feel distant from Him? God cares about you. He cares about that. He wants you back. He, 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 he wants you back in His presence. And he's, he's pursuing you. He's even pursuing you in this sermon. To come back. To come back. He wants you. And Jesus illustrates the value of one lost or strained soul. Number four, God's love is very personal. This shows us that God's love is very personal. God loves you, believer. God chose you. Believer, God predestined you. God has always loved you and He always will love you. I love what one theologian, Gerhardus of all, says the, the, the reason God will never stop loving you is that He never began. You get that? I, I, I had to think about that for a long time before I got it. 
God, God will never stop loving you because He never started. He never started loving you. He always has. Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, God says in Jeremiah. God's love is very personal. God the Father personally loves and chose you to be His. Ephesians 1, 3-6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God the Father personally loves you and sent His Son to die for you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God the Son personally loves you and came and died and rose for you. I love how Galatians 2.20 uh, uh, communicates this love to me personally and you personally. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes that very personal to himself. Jesus loves me. Jesus gave Himself for me. And that's true for you. Jesus loves you that way. J Jesus didn't... When, he, when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just have a, a sea of nameless humanity that He hoped might believe in Him. No, He was dying to secure your salvation by name. I'm dying for Brandon. I'm dying for Heidi. I'm dying for Isaac. I'm dying for Tanya and Bob. I'm dying for them to secure their salvation, to buy their faith, to buy their repentance, to, to purchase everything needed to bring them safely to myself and safely home. God the Son personally loves you and came and died and rose for you. God the Holy Spirit personally loves you and came and, and calls you to be born again. Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We can't work for this. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough. It's a free gift given by God and the Holy Spirit calls you to be born again. It works in you to change you. God's love is very personal. Jesus is teaching that to us in this parable, in this text. Number five, God's God will pursue you if you go astray, this text teaches us. God will pursue you if you go astray. You ain't never getting rid of Him. <laughs> God will come after you. And it might be painful. But He's not going to let you go. He, he's going to come for you. You try to walk away, He's going to come for you. He leaves the 99 to find the one who's gone astray. Some have given God, the God of heaven, the name, the hound of heaven. He's like the hound dog of heaven. He's going to sniff you out, chase you out, find you out, run you down. He's going to find you. You ain't getting rid of Him, believer. 
He's going to come after you. He's going to come after you. As Psalm 23, 6 says, He's pursuing you. He's chasing you down. I, I love uh, Piper gives the illustration of like a, like a, a highway patrolman. You've been speeding on the highway and this highway patrolman is speeding after you with lights blazing and siren blaring and he's chasing you down, but not to arrest you, to bless you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. That's, that's our God. He's pursuing you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. And, and it might not feel like goodness and mercy. Things happen in life that don't feel like goodness and mercy, don't they? They feel like God is being harsh. They feel like God is being mean. They feel like God is being hard on you or punishing you. Well, banish those thoughts to hell. And say, get behind me, Satan. That's what Job's wife said to him. Why don't you curse God and die? After he lost everything and lost all his children. Can you imagine that? Losing all your children? But Job said no. Bless God. The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May, may God give us faith like Job. He was pursuing Job with goodness and mercy. All the days of his life. When we don't know what to do, we trust Him. We trust Him. God will pursue you with goodness and mercy. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. God will pursue you. We went over to Heidi, some of us, to watch Secret Church. And it was an exposition of the book of Jonah. And, you know, God pursued Jonah, didn't He? Jonah was trying to run away from God, run away from what God called Jonah to do, and God pursued Jonah with a storm, pursued Jonah with a big fish, and, and got, got Jonah on the right track. And I, I remember before, before we watched that, thinking to myself about Jonah, Lord, do whatever it takes for you to cause me to walk in your will. Swallow me. <laughs> Send a fish. Send whatever you got to send to swallow me and make me walk in your will for my life. That's what we want. And praise God, he, he, he shows us here He will pursue us. He will pursue us when we go astray. Number six, God rejoices over you when you return home. God rejoices over you when you return home. He, he, he rejoices over it when this, this sheep is found. R- remember the prodigal son's return? Remember, there are two prodigal sons. One went off into the far country. And when he came back, the father rejoiced. He, 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 he wasn't met with harshness from the father. I told you so. Why'd you do that? No, he, he, was, he was met with open arms. Rejoicing. They had a feast. He slaughtered the fattened calf and, and rejoiced that this son who was lost is now found. God rejoices over you, beloved. He rejoices over you now. He rejoices over you when you return. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how God views you. His little lamb. Come to Him. Return to Him. In 7, we learn from these verses and 
I took this one from Daniel Doriani. The Lord exercises His care for His people through His people. The Lord exercises His care for His people through His people. God uses us, His church, to care for each other. God uses us, His church, to pursue people who've gone astray. God uses us, His church, to encourage each other and help one another keep following the Lord. Doriani comments, the Father cares for His children by the work of Jesus, by the movement of the Spirit, by His providential control of history, and by appointing angels to watch over us. But He also instructs believers, especially the mature, to seek our brothers, especially little ones in the faith, when they stray. Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Galatians 6.1 And James says, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James 5.19-20 Jesus says the same thing. Throughout Matthew 18, Jesus has implied that leaders ought to watch over little ones when they stray. In 1815, which we'll get to next week, God willing, he makes it explicit. There he explains how to work beside the Lord to restore believers when they stray. God uses his people to pursue those who have strayed. I love this story that Dr. Ligon Duncan shared about believers pursuing those who strayed. He says, I've shared with you before the story of Dr. Dupree Rain, a very great and godly man who was the chairman of the fine arts division at Furman University. After his daughter had been married to her husband of some 30 years, her husband left her right before the children were to leave the home. He left her in terrible financial condition and remarried a woman with whom he had had an affair. Dr. Rain had to come out of retirement in order to support his daughter and her children. It was a humiliating experience for him. About 12 months later, his ex-son-in-law, the one who left his daughter, was diagnosed with an inoperable brain cancer. The first person at his side was Dr. Dupree Rain to minister to him And to call him to Christ. Because Dr. Rain had, throughout that whole grievous ordeal, despite the injury that had been done to him and to his daughter, he had kept in mind two things. That what his son-in-law had done was absolutely not right, and it deserved God's condemnation. But at the same time, he desired to see him recovered for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he prayed earnestly that God would convict him of his sin. And he did. And he repented. And he died, restored not only to his father-in-law, but restored to his God. Dr. Rain manifested there that godly attitude that we ought to have. Not simply passing over sin, but at the same time desiring to see the sinner recovered for Christ. Is that our attitude toward those who sin and offend against us? Is that our attitude toward the weak? Well, beloved, this is God's attitude. And and Jesus is teaching us we should have that same heart and attitude to pursue those who are weak and small and straying. 
Jesus gives another reason not to despise one another. Don't despise one another, but love one another because the will of Jesus' Father in heaven is that no believer shall ever perish. Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's good news. The Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipotent God of the universe. It's not His will that any one of His little ones should perish. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Beloved, we have these promises that will never perish. We have these promises that God loves us. That God cares for us. He cares for, for the most weak and small and insignificant of His, His people and will keep them to the end. And therefore, we should not despise them, but love them. We have these promises in God's Word. Romans eight thirty one through 39 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus says the same thing in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Beloved, like your heavenly Father, Is it your desire to love and encourage and help your fellow church members to ensure that they will never perish? Is that your desire? To so love and care for, encourage, help, be in the lives of your fellow church members to ensure, like your Heavenly Father, that they never perish? It's like what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Well, we're called to do that, to love one another, to not despise one another, to care for one another, encourage one another, to help one another make it to heaven. And we do so looking unto Jesus, the one who perished in our place. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The amazing truth, this amazing truth in Psalm 23.1 is ultimately fulfilled in the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Him is this supernatural satisfaction fully realized. And for this realization to happen, Jesus had to lay down His life for the sheep. 
Jesus had to lack everything for His sheep. Instead of rest in green pastures, He had no place to lay His head. Instead of still waters, He was baptized with the waters of the wrath of God. Instead of a restored soul, His soul was poured out unto death. Instead of being led in paths of righteousness, He was led as a sheep to be slaughtered and offered Himself as a propitiation so that God might be proved righteous. Instead of fearing no evil in the death dark valley, the dark death valley, He was made evil who knew no evil and sorrowed unto death as He contemplated the darkness of death that would utterly consume Him. Instead of having God with Him as His comfort, God forsook Him, pouring out His wrath upon Him. Instead of having a rod and a staff to comfort Him, the rod of the Father was pleased to crush Him. Instead of having a table spread before Him, He hungered in the wilderness and thirsted unto death. Instead of having His head anointed with oil, He wore a blood-soaked crown of thorns. Instead of having a cup that overflows, He drank the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs. Instead of goodness and mercy pursuing Him all His days, wrath and torment pursued Him unto death upon that cross. Instead of dwelling in the house of the Lord, He was banished from the dwelling of the Lord as the unclean and cursed one. Jesus had to lack everything as He Himself became the Lamb of God who was slain. And He did all of this on behalf of stubborn, sinful, hell-deserving sheep who rebelled against Him like you and like me. This is the best news in all the world. All who know this Good Shepherd by grace through faith will lack no good thing. For He will provide for them and protect them and comfort them and satisfy them fully. He will provide for you and protect you and comfort you and satisfy you fully. He will be all in all to you now and forever. Revelation 7, 15-17 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Beloved, God has loved us this much. And so we ought to love one another. Jesus is the God-man and Good Shepherd who came to save that which was lost so that we will not despise one another. And we're motivated not to despise one another, but love one another because our Father in Heaven deeply loves us and will never let us perish. Christ Jesus loves and won't despise His little ones whose angels' eyes look to His Father, their allies, ministering spirits wise. For Jesus came, He lived, He dies. Under God's curse, He'd agonize. The God-man died a, a death king size, then rose death's end to finalize and save His sheep who strayed with lies. The one who's lost and to Him cries, He'll find and save and will baptize. Rejoicing shall take place with highs, for our Father wills to rise. All His children immortalize. None shall perish. Evangelize. For Christ is our everlasting prize. And Father, we thank You 
for your word to us this morning. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for Jesus communicating that great love to us. Father, we pray that we would know the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ and the love of the Father that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God and that what we might be so satisfied in your love, O oh God, that we would be enabled by your Spirit to love one another the way we should, not to despise one another, God, to even love our enemies, even love those who get on our nerves, even love people who are hard to love because we're so loved by You and know it. Lord, we pray You would assure us of Your love this morning by Your Spirit. God, be with those who may be here today who have not yet received Your love by faith in Christ. We pray that they would be saved today. We pray that we would all go out rejoicing in your great love for us. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.